In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I saw the grass wither. I watched the flower fade. And I asked then and so often since, what shall I cry? It had all started out so wonderfully well. In 1982, I went to San Francisco to become the rector of the Church of the Advent, a small historic parish, downtown, largely gay and lesbian, super high church, financially very secure, with the Castro to the left of me, south of Market to the right of me, the best restaurants outside of Paris encircling me, and right across the street, the War Memorial Opera House. I was in heaven. (laughs) And at 32, I looked more angelic than I do these days. (laughs) I thought, this is going to be fun. It was. For a moment. And then darkness descended, and we had no idea what it was. In those years, a man named Michael Hennessy was the sheriff of San Francisco, and I had met Sheriff Hennessy at a community fundraiser sponsored by our cathedral there. He was a good-looking man, wearing a great-looking uniform. A real one. (laughs) So from behind the locked security gate of my clergy collar, I chatted him up. At a thing like that, priests are supposed to be friendly. (laughs) A few days later, this Mike Hennessy called me. And I don't mean maybe. I mean really. (laughs) But it wasn't quite what I had hoped. Would I be willing to visit one of his top deputies who was in a very bad way? Young, strong, award-winning, handsome. He had been infected with some odd, seemed to be cancer. Um, Not the usual awful cancer, something like that, but weirder. A heretofore very rare sarcoma that caused awful, dark, purplish-black lesions and end-stage pneumonia and it seemed that the deputy would soon die. That's what happened with this thing. His own church, his own family, wanted nothing to do with him anymore. They had found out how this fatal disease was transmitted, and they were horrified and regarded Hank as already dead and gone. I went to see Hank and realized I had seen him before, often, as had so many. And like those so many, 
I had so admired him for, well, multiple reasons, but mostly because he kept us all safe in those days when there was not quite as much safety. But at community gatherings, even controversial ones, politically charged ones, potentially explosive ones, we always felt safe when we saw that he was there on patrol and keeping a careful eye on everything. We knew we were safe, protected, a little distracted, but protected by this young deputy who was trusted by everyone on all sides. We all knew that this officer would only ever do the right thing. He was a dream and a reality and a genuine hero to so many of us. Now I saw him there in that bed on the fifth floor of San Francisco General, this once massive, muscled, glorious man, now a skinny, fragile wreck, covered in purpleized skin, looking frantic and frazzled and hopeless, and gasping for breath. He was dying, and we both knew that. I was a young and very inexperienced priest, and I'd been dazzled by this man when I saw him on the street, who now brought tears to my eyes when I saw him in that bed, and I was not sure what to do or say. So I just took him in my arms and held him and tried to comfort him and offered vague, wandering prayers and mumbled foolish reassurances and then realized and admitted he was on the edge of death and did not need cheering up. He needed the last rites. He needed to proceed toward God. I offered and offered as well as I could every comforting, strengthening, correct and appointed, collect and commendation and absolution, every full and final prayer and ritual required by the last rites. And yet still, those perfect, precious eyes of his kept darting about with a nervousness that he had never displayed as a man who had kept us all safe. Now he needed help, sacramental help devout help, and I had just run dry. I'd run through and out of all my priestly help. I was done, finished, emptied of all my prayers, all my memorized consolations. All had been offered, recited, completed, and to no avail. It hadn't helped. That skinny little boy was scared to death, and this little boy was scared of that death, and I was at a loss. All I could think of at that point was to hold him just a little closer and whisper in his ear, Now I lay me down to sleep. He replied, I pray the Lord my soul to keep my turn. If I should die before I wake, he whispered so quietly but so triumphantly, I pray the Lord my soul to take. 
And with that, his eyes steadied and gleamed and shone and became again those eyes that a thousand men had admired and all of us had depended on. And then those spectacular, clear, unafraid, perfectly calm eyes gently closed. And he handed his soul over to his superior officer. This then was that acquired immune deficiency syndrome I was beginning to hear about. And I realized it was more than a syndrome. It was a silencer, a silent, swift, soulless, merciless killer. So many of my people, my friends, would die. Now, today, due to the wisdom and wonder and brilliance of so many medical professionals and scientific investigators, being HIV positive is very serious, like coronary artery disease or breast cancer or diabetes. But with excellent medical care, the person leads a long, satisfying, enjoyable, productive life. That is, for those who are aware of the assets available, can afford the care required, or know enough to contact an agency like Aunt Rita's, who can arrange for the services required and facilitate people with the abundant hope and help now available. Then it is all a gloriously different time. But back then, in those earlier, darker, lonelier days, 30 years ago, it was a death sentence. You faded and died, quickly, miserably, and too often forgotten as well, alone and abandoned by loved ones and family, and maybe even by friends who were just too frightened to stop by and often enough, too often, forgotten and rejected by your church. It was a very different time back then, with very different results. All people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. Surely the people are grass. He was my first. In those days, in that city, Many men said that a lot in a quite different context, and it usually was not true. But for me at that moment, in that way, it was true. He was my first, the first man I ever held as he lay dying of AIDS, but he would not be my last. There were to be 327 more. Anointed, absolved, commended into God's mercy, memorialized at a service, recorded in our parish register and buried in the ground or scattered on the bay. Granted a mere fraction of the number that died in San Francisco, in our nation and in the world, in those awful 80s, but still, 327 in one small parish over a single decade was horrific. The one soprano in our tiny choir a courageous, gifted young woman would be asked to sing P.A. Yesu from Foray's Requiem at over 200 of our requiems for young men she had known and cherished. I don't know how she did it. In the years to come after that deputy's death, as the deaths multiplied and the funerals piled up, 
I came to feel as I thought perhaps some rabbi must have felt in some tiny East European Jewish shtetl in 1939. My community is not going to survive. Not one. There will be no one, nothing left. How do I speak of God in such a God-forsaken time? What shall I cry? I never came up with the answer, not then, not since. And I'm not alone in that. The Pope before Pope Francis, Pope Benedict XVI, was not a left-wing San Francisco theological radical in anyone's mind. And yet Pope Benedict said when he visited Auschwitz in 2006, in a place like this, words fail. In the end, there can only be a dread silence. A silence which is itself a heartfelt cry to God, Lord, Why did you remain silent? The Pope, with searing and sublime humility, added, I have no answer. No one does. There's only the silence. My soul in silence waits. From whom comes my salvation? The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever, even when we do not, cannot hear it at all, even when there is only silence. The word of our God stands. In the late 90s, I decided to leave San Francisco and come to Arizona to a new and very different parish. I arrived the weekend before I was due to start at my new church over on the west side. And so on that first Sunday, I went to Trinity Cathedral in downtown Phoenix. You may know the place. (laughs) They were singing my very favorite hymn of all, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, In Light, Inaccessible, Hid from Our Eyes. It had always been my favorite from childhood. But my love and admiration for that hymn only grew over those years. It said things I was not brave enough or faithful enough to say on my own. It said them for me. I love that hymn. I joined in robustly. A little off-key, as you can imagine, but joyfully. And then I saw the woman leading the procession, and I stopped singing and just stared. I know that woman. I know her. How? When? I peeked at the bulletin, at the cast of characters listed on the back. Kathleen O'Leary. Huh. Kath, Kath, no, no. No, I don't know her. Guess maybe I saw her face somewhere at some point. Maybe checked her out in some checkout line at Safeway, perhaps. (laughs) We came face to face later at coffee hour, and we paused, and then smiled, and then beamed. 
I said, you were that nurse on 5B at San Francisco General 15 years ago, the AIDS ward. The nurse all the men hoped would be their nurse and on duty when they died. She said quietly, and you were that young priest who used to visit the men who never got any other visits. I was surely not as effective or as helpful as Kathleen, but we both did what we could in those days, which admittedly was not much. And then we stopped chatting amidst the clack and clatter of that convivial coffee hour, and we were both just standing there, staring into the distance, remembering. I occasionally returned to San Francisco, yes, for the opera and for the ballet, for a glorious drive across that gorgeous Golden Gate Bridge, and then a perfect cappuccino in a perfect Sausalito. But in a macabre way, I also wander the streets I used to dance along, passing by wonderful bars that, unfortunately, I was never quite able to pass by in those days, past repainted houses and apartments filled with happy, laughing, arguing people who don't seem to see the ghosts at the windows, just behind the curtains. Faces of men I recognize who used to live there and party over there and love and rejoice and donate and volunteer and come home and collapse over there, up there, in that apartment over there, and then fix themselves up and venture out again. Am I the only one on this whole street who sees them there in the windows so clearly? I wandered over to Golden Gate Park to the AIDS Memorial Grove, a silent memorial spot for those whose flashing faces I thought I had seen earlier. And I sat there quietly, remembering all my friends and my parishioners and the men I had loved so long ago, all so suddenly gone. I sat there for a long time, pointlessly, in a quiet, silent anguish, overcome by horror and fatigue, and aching from the distance of a silent, distracted God who seemed as unavailable to me as these friends of mine were now. I realized then that I did not, never would, understand anything about God, not anything that mattered, other than one small, silent, indestructible belief, I matter, you matter, we matter to God. They all mattered to him. They still do. He sees their faces far more clearly than I do and at far more glorious windows. That's all I know. That's all I need to know. Some star-struck young man now sometimes comes to me for counseling, a wise old elder of the church. Damn it. and seeks my grizzled gospel advice. 
This eager, hopeful, love-struck youngster says breathlessly, Oh, Ken and Bill, there's someone I love. I just met someone, the one. I love him. He's a gift from God. He's what God intends for me. I know that, even though I don't know one thing about him (laughs) or understand anything he says. Of course, he never really says anything, never gives me a clue, so I have no idea. But I know this, it's perfect. I say with kindness and a vague sign of the cross over the grinning, glowing face before me, Oh, my child. Are you nuts? Run. End of date. Dump the jerk now. Then later that day, I sit in the sun with an ancient couple, older even than me, Yes, there are such. And a gracious, wise, cultured woman murmurs to me while gazing at the man who adores her between his fits of wheezing. Oh, Ken and Bill, I just love this man. We've been together for 60 years, but there's still so much more to him than I will ever know, ever can know, or can ever hope to understand. But I know this, I love him, always have, always will, and I know he loves me. Now that, I believe. There is so much more to God than I will ever know or can ever understand, but I know this, he loves me. I am as secure in that knowledge as that radiant woman is quietly, sublimely secure in her love despite the deep abiding remaining mysteries of her man. I know that God loves me. I know that he loves you. I don't know how I know that or why I know that, but I know that the way I know I have DNA. I don't even really know what DNA is or how it works or why. The genetic code is just that, some code. But I know I have it. Never saw it, never heard it. We never talk or chat. If we did, I wouldn't admit it from the pulpit. I don't even remember the whole long word that DNA is short for. But I know I have DNA. Just as surely I know God loves me. I know he loves you. I know he loved and still loves them. Always has, always will, loves us. And I don't understand his frequent remoteness or the disabling, disheartening silences, or the disasters that occur. But I know he loves us. And I don't know how I know that or why. Perhaps it is simply some strange gift of grace and glory. In the early 80s in San Francisco, I met a young man named Cleve Jones. Cleve Jones was a community activist, a man who embraced all, even those of us of some miscellaneous faith, And one year he asked me to offer, at the start of one of the memorial marches that he organized, to offer a prayer. But, as he said, silently. Silence is better for something like this. I thought he probably meant better in the sense of more sensitive, more discreet, given how many people of how many faiths and none who were present. But I so much later realized what Cleve really meant 
when he said he wanted silence in my prayer, in the whole candlelit march. Sometimes silence is better, even if it's a huge candlelit march filling block after block after block. Sometimes silence is better, even when you want to pray. Sometimes silence is better, even when you are witnessing for justice and respect. Sometimes silence is better, even when you're looking at great art, even at the astounding, heartbreaking art that is now displayed over in that room. Sometimes silence is better when you have gathered to remember the dead and all their dreams. Sometimes silence is better, even if you're God. After the parade, Cleve thought that the names of the dead, which had been written on battered, smudged squares of cardboard, carried and then hung up on walls at the parade's end, looked like, like a, well, a quilt, like panels in a quilt. And he had an idea. Witnessing silently to all who would see that quilt or any of its panels about all of what had happened. There were 22 panels when I first saw the AIDS memorial quilt in San Francisco, 1920 when I last saw it on the Washington Mall in 1987, and over 48,000 now, some of them here this morning, over in that great hall of ours. Many of those memorial squares, doubtless sewn by a group, chatting and chuckling as they remembered their beloved, and some outrageous thing he did or said or wore, and some, I should think, sown in silence. Sometimes silence is better. And so a silent quilt, now, still, always, and forevermore, silently speaking for all of those who were silenced, reminding us silently that The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of a God who loves us, loves us. I know that. So do you. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.